Welcome to another Bioticast. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today I have the pleasure again of talking with Emmy Khan. Hello, Emmy. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? Well, I was thinking about this leading into the podcast. Do you have a PhD? I do, yeah. Yeah, I got my PhD in... Oh, so I got it over lockdown, actually. <laughs> I have some, some horrible memories of writing my dissertation uh, mm. over the COVID pandemic. Yeah, so, so 2020, the, the late 2020, I got my PhD, yeah. Right. So can I refer to you as Dr. Khan? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> you can do if you want. I don't know how many people call that. It seems to be a bit of a, a power play um, sometimes. I, the only time I refer to myself as Dr. Khan is when I book hotels for myself. I that I get a, a decent room. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, my father's an academic, and I talk to him on a weekly basis. In fact, ironically, because of artificial life, I wrote my uh, honours degree associated with Today, Earwig, Tomorrow, Man, which was in Margaret Abbott's philosophy of artificial life. But uh, I was at a university that was quite... Sorry, you had a question? No, no, sorry, I'm, I'm calm. I was at a university that was quite against the notion... Well, basically anything associated with artificial life, the whole notion... I mean, today, Earwig Tomorrow Man is about how cognition and the use of objects in vision analysis is useful uh, to, I think, Rodney Brooks' robots uh, at the time. And anyway, I wrote my dissertation on that, and uh, the fellow who was supposed to be reviewing it disappeared. Well, he didn't disappear. He left the university without any notice. And yeah, my whole reach into academia kind of ended there, and I decided to follow the dot-com, you know, what I call the speculative technology boom of the late 90s and came over to the US having finished my uh, honours. But it was it remained uncompleted for like nine years because the university refused to acknowledge all the downsides of what had happened with it so i'm not an academic in any way but i have a close family member who's an academic um, so I, I will call you Ibi khan going forward and if you want to be called dr khan just let me know <laughs> yeah, that's fine. thank you so today is a kind of a bonus recording because we weren't planning on recording today and i wanted to discuss music with you because it's something that's been very impactful in both of our lives do you want to get started? What what does music mean to you? Yeah, so actually, yeah, thank you. So it's something that you mentioned in the in the previous episode that I forgot to to circle back to. So I'm glad that we're having this conversation. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, music. It's at a certain point, not not too long ago, actually, I, I would have probably referred to myself as a musician in some sense, and we can speak a little bit about what that means and, and, and sort of this quote-unquote quasi-career that, that might have happened. Um, yeah, I, I think for me, music has been has been huge. It's been a, a creative outlet, uh, which I think as scientists, as academics, as, as human beings, everybody needs. Uh, yeah, and I think I have come from a family of, well, I say a family, my dad was uh, or is uh, in the music business so uh, when when I was younger uh, he owned uh, a couple of record labels and mm. dealt with like talent and artist management and so on to various scales some some sort of like local talent but you know some international talent as well and, and would work with people like the BBC in the UK mm. and so on and um, he had um he had a studio, so he he had a set of producers and, and musicians and stuff that worked with him. Uh, and he had a studio um, up until actually I think I was 18 and, and various things happened. And he was getting rid of it 
uh, and he kept asking me for about for about seven or eight years. He was asking me and asking me if I wanted to get involved in this music business, and mm. I was like. I don't want to get involved. And, and, and Sod's Law is he gets rid of it. And a year later, I decide that I'm interested in music production. Mm. Uh, so <laughs> like taking my own path there. Yeah. But, but sort of, yeah, that, that's sort of the genesis of, of my interest slash, you know, quote unquote career in, in music. Uh, so yeah, that, that sort of began when I was yeah, 18, 19 years old, I guess, which is about 13. God, no, it wasn't 13 years ago. It was 14 years ago. Believe me. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was me. Uh, that's how about fascinating. You? That's absolutely fascinating. I have a couple of questions. In terms of the oh. international artists, I mean, I'm assuming, did your father operate out of London? Out of where, sorry? Or, or, um, were you based in Birmingham originally? Did your father operate uh, out of Birmingham? In, in Blackburn, actually. So this was in Lancashire. So Wonderful. I know Blackburn, more... Lancashire. Very good. Oh, very well. <laughs> How do you know Blackburn? Well, I used to live in the UK. I lived in Wilmslow. Well, I lived in Leicester initially and then Wilmslow. Um, so, oh. yes, I'm very familiar with the Northwest. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've got very good things to say about the Northwest anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. So he was based, and, and, and the labels and so on were based out of uh, out of the Northwest, so in Blackburn. Mm. Um, but he did, yeah, in terms of international. So he worked a lot with, I mean, they're probably not household names to anybody that might be listening here, but but certainly in uh, certain pockets of, of the globe, so, you know, places like Asia and stuff, you know, the, these were you know fairly prominent artists that, that he was working with. But, you know, when, you, when you're a kid, you don't really, because they're not, you know, these are not the artists that I know and I, I'm watching on TV. They're mm. not really that I care that that my dad is working with necessarily so it sort of just yeah it passed me completely interesting so how young were you when you started playing music um wow so I, I should say I'm not I'm not a you know a formally trained musician I'm sort of as many people are I guess sort of self-taught and just you pick up various things but my I remember for my 10th birthday actually I got a uh, a MIDI keyboard mm. uh, that you plug into uh the PC and yeah, I mean, every time I plugged it in, it, it <laughs> you would just hear the PC just heat up. Uh, sorry, like, you know, the fans would go and it would just yes. heat up. Because, yeah, uh, that, that was the state of, of the PCs at the time. Um, but yeah, no, it was nice. Um, it, it sort of just taught you, um, you know, how to play uh, a keyboard, just a small keyboard. Um, and I was kind of interested. I mean, I, I've always been really, I've really enjoyed music, listening mm. to music and watching musicians. Even now, I'll, I'll go to you know, live gigs as much as I can and as much as my aging knees and ankles will allow me to. Yes. Um, but yeah, so, so so 10, I think, would be my first real exposure to, you know, having a player with the, with, with creating music, let's say. Mm. Well, my story, as is, is, is the case with a lot of aspects of this podcast, is long and tortured. I started playing music. Um, the family had an upright piano. So I started playing music on the upright piano, but I did violin and trombone for a period of time. Um, I had quite a formal music education with the view that um, when it came to actually going to university, certainly seeking a, a potentially doing a music degree rather than the physics and philosophy degrees I ended up doing was certainly on the cards. It's always interesting because you get to that stage when you're about 18. I've had a number of friends who actually made the decision to do music formally rather than physics or whatever they were doing at school up until that point. And I was slightly jealous about that. I had this strange situation where when I left university, I went on effectively an international tour studying VR labs. And what I was going to do when I got back to Australia was spend about six months recording an album. 
which is what I oh. really wanted to do. I mean, I love playing the piano and I love... I worked with musicians and recorded them. Ironically, with my artificial life simulation, the computer that I got from the Australian Film Commission, I got a grant from the Australian Film Commission, who was at the time funding digital technology folks as well. So I was it enabled me to record CD quality audio. And then there was a bunch of post-processing and a bunch of additional things uh, that I did. So music for me is really something where I made a distinct choice somewhere in my life that I wasn't going to be a formal musician. I wasn't going to continue to pursue it. But I do go back periodically. Uh, and it's interesting, actually, my current relationship with music, because when the comedian, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the history of, of what was previously called Noble Ape, when the comedian started doing his IP assault, I thought this would be a really good time to actually take a majority of my music and move it into digital audio so people could actively download it. So if folks are listening in, um, you know, type my name, Tom Barbelay, into your favorite music streaming service of choice and you should get some stuff coming up. So uh, music for me was just so I had a very long-standing relationship with a piano teacher who also taught me musicianship. Um, I sang in choirs. It was basically my life uh, while I was in Australia. And what came out of this in terms of kind of modern times is firstly, I put a bunch of my music that I recorded in the late nineties, which would be loosely referred to as, uh, I guess electronic experimental hip hop potentially, because I did record scratching and a variety of other things with it as well. But the thing that reaches back into artificial life was I was always interested in the underlying frequencies within audio. And I started calling them the genetics of audio and then started manipulating them with kind of genetic experiments as you would do with artificial life simulation. Um, and it produced audio, which I referred to at the time as polymorphic sound. I wasn't just keyed in with regards to using a life associated with everything I worked on <laughs> that had something to do with genetics or some interest. So if folks are interested in listening in genetics, which is actually the name of the track, um, is a, which exemplifies parts of the aspects of polymorphic sound was the recording that I did in the late 90s. And it's actually been played on classical radio in Australia. It's probably the most radio exposure I've ever gotten for my music. I have gotten bits and pieces of radio exposure for, for lesser tracks. But Genetics was a favourite whenever they wanted to say, oh, yes, and there are these Australian experimental musicians while I was living in the US at the time. But um, so Genetics is uh, probably the best description of this. So I had a very old piano, uh, which was made by Richard Lip and Son, uh, which my friends used to call Rich Lips because that's what was printed out on the piano. <laughs> and that I would play for hours and hours on end. I was uh, very interested in just oh, this almost emotional catharsis. I mean, that's the thing that music strikes me with, that the music, in particular digital music that I've recorded in the past, I don't know, four years and put out, is completely about catharsis. It's about saying, I have these innate abilities to play this instrument and I want to just create an experiment out of it and play it out. So ironically, the polymorphic sound, which I haven't actually touched. I was thinking about this coming to this recording. I worked with a fellow called Tom Erb, who's very well known in the experimental music circles. In fact, I've met a number of people in my kind of day-to-day -day life who are experimental musicians who know about Tom Erb's work. He was at CalArts at the time. So I used my genetic analysis with a, a package that he'd written called SoundHack. I was a kind of expert user of SoundHack for many years. Um, but that, I don't know, in a kind of precursory view is the current stuff I have online, everything that's tagged 2020 is more of the kind of jazz experimental ragtime. It kind of goes through a variety of different phases. But it, when I put it online initially, people were quite confused because I've been known for kind of 
computer experimental music up until that time. I said, no, that, that's actually my fingers hitting the keyboard. It's actually, a, there's a human behind it playing it. But anyway, that's, that's my uh, intro into music, if I could give a kind of potted history. Yeah, wow. I mean, yeah, that's fascinating. So you, you mentioned uh, that you used to do some scratching. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was a, uh, so was this a DJing? Uh, so yes, yes. My early history in Australia as well is with regards to DJing, both in nightclubs and uh, for one musical group. We, we're going to get to theism, but this was a, a very strange Pentecostal musical group. I, as I used to tease people at the time, I said I would, I would, DJ for Satan himself, if I had to. It didn't mean that the DJing for a religious group just meant that I was constantly touring with them. And they would fill these halls when they cheered. It's the only time in my life that I've been remotely attracted to the opposite sex. Like the, the, the power of being a DJ in a group and just the power of a bunch of, cause I was, I was a dance, I like to dance as well. Like, I mean, you know, this music lends itself very heavily to dancing, as as you mentioned with regards to your wonky knees. So, um, you know, I, once I was done, I'd do a DJ set with the band. Typically, I did a bit on my own. And then I'd go into the crowd and start dancing. And I'd end up being surrounded by these, I don't know how old they were at the time, probably 17, 18-year-olds, maybe 16, who even knows. But I'd go out into the crowd with these people and immediately start dancing and I'd get quite a, a throng of people dancing around me. So performing for a musical group, even though they were, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Pentecostal religious movement at all. We can talk a little bit more about that when we get to theism. But they were a very strange group. They were Potter's House Pentecostals, which means that they had an even, they're almost like Mormons. They had an even greater script that they were reading from. But we'll, we'll get to theism another time. But yes, DJing was a large part of my life. I still have one turntable. I don't have two turntables anymore. Um, but I think this is something for my daughters to explore at some stage. I love teaching my younger brothers and their younger friends how to scratch and how to do basic DJing because I think it's a skill where once you understand that you've got this record moving and you're moving your hands and you've got to control the music in a certain way, and, you know, back spins and scratching, it all came to me. The reason it came to me, I should point this out, was in 1991, my father was at UCLA. And I'd just, I'd been to England once, but and I think, yeah, just England once, but, uh, I went to UCLA, well, I went to LA, um, and because of the way my father works, I had to go to summer school while I was there, which is a very strange thing. If you know anything about American summer schools and at the summer school, I was the only Caucasian. Uh, actually that's not true. There was one, there was one guy who walked to the school with me who was the other Caucasian, but it was predominantly African American, some Latino, but predominantly African American. And they just took me in. They just completely befriended me. I was in Australia. I, I don't know. I, I sound like I sound now when I lived in Australia. So they always thought to me, why, where are you from? What's, what's the deal with your accent? Even though I was born in Australia. So it was the first time that I felt really welcomed. And my father lived opposite Rhino Records. And Rhino Records is quite a well known label. It's had a bunch of different artists that have appeared on it, including hip hop acts. Um, so I would go down into Rhino Records and kind of dig in the crates at Rhino Records, age, I don't know, 13. So I came back to Australia with records. And that was the origin of my DJ. And then, of course, thousands, well, thousands of broken turntables. But having to buy my own turntables, which broke on a regular basis, was like the, the, the kind of continuation of that. But, you know, DJing in nightclubs and things like that is pretty cool as well. I, I preferred the live music that I did just because it was more participatory in some regard. But you can still get an amazing crowd participation when you DJ in nightclubs. So anyway, I haven't done that for about 20 plus years. I remember when we first moved to Vegas, 
DJ Adam was starting a residency here, and I thought, I wonder if I started DJing again if I could get a residency in Vegas. Um, but anyway, that's my that's my background with DJing. No, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, we, um, we so, so in our sort of hip hop collective, mm-hmm. I, I never know what to call it. It's not, it's not really a band. Mm-hmm. Um, th- you know, there are four of us, five, depending on whoever sort of features. There is a DJ, uh, mm-hmm. and he has been DJing, so he's maybe 10 years older than me, and he's wow. probably been DJing since since he was, yeah, since a young child. And he, I mean, on any given day, I will just go to his house and, you know, he'll have his turntables up, and he'll be scratching, he'll be going through his vinyls, and, and, and yeah, just, just putting things together. And I think it's, it is really nice. I Sometimes I, I find it fascinating. So, I mean, I've got my own sort of record collection, uh vinyls you know a, a few hundred mm-hmm. uh and they're mostly for sampling purposes and we could talk a little bit more about sampling as Certainly. well if you want um, yeah uh but yeah i i've sort of collected them at you know i guess what you would call them yard sales or markets mm-hmm. or you know just just in in bulk um not really hoping for anything in particular but you know the, the hope that you you pick up 30 or 40 records and you go through them and you find a nice sample you find a nice little loop that that you, that you can pull and and change the pitch or the speed of and, and like do whatever backwards. you might yeah a variety yeah. of things um but then i go to his house and you know he has <laughs> thousands <laughs> thousands of, of of records and yeah just on any given evening he's just i mean he does a lot of gigs so you know mm-hmm. he's still doing stuff at clubs and and at various events so he'll get pulled into weddings or birthdays and and i guess the stuff that djs don't particularly like to do but maybe the stuff that, that pays the bill sometimes um and yeah i mean he's just explores i mean most of most of his time as a dj is just spent in his his uh studio his garage just scratching and, and just just practicing his craft and i think that's that's fascinating even at even at his age and with his experience he would say you know 30 plus years of of djing he's still just enjoying being a dj and i think that's mm. that's really cool mm. yeah my relationship with music is rather curious because i i come back to it like it's something that I return to periodically and particularly through COVID, I used it as an opportunity to do a, a lot of experimental composition and actually recording some of that and putting it out. But it's something where I would love to have a dedicated, I mean, I have a emu a USB keyboard that I do a lot of my composition on. So I do have the accoutrements, so to speak. Records are really difficult if you want to travel internationally or you know yes. move your location that's something so i've really thinned my records out in the past probably two three years uh i now have a single flight case which is mainly containing a lot of the records that i used to sample from and yeah let's talk about sampling as a phenomena because that was something that i took away from my time in la and certainly early on i realized if i was going to make certainly things that people were going to rap over or just sing over or do whatever they were going to do over it I had to have a relatively large sample collection. And as you say, the benefit of when I lived on campus, I would go to the university records sales and they were, you know, two buck records, basically. So you could really dig deeply and and find a bunch of, you know, eclectic stuff with just $20 quite comfortably. And you'd walk away with 10 records and hopefully, hopefully maybe one or two really good samples out of the 10 records. Yeah, no, that's exactly. I mean, I couldn't tell you the amount of times that I have, you know, I've gone into a, a thrift store, or a charity shop, and you know, I've spent no less than five pounds and come out with five or six records, and I'll play mm-hmm. one of them, and and it, it'll be a record from like the sixties or the seventies of some obscure artist that I've never heard of, and I'll listen to a truck, and 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 I'll be like, 
how have I never heard this song before? It is incredible. Mm. Uh, because I'm listening, what I'm trying to do is, and not, I'm not listening for the song, but I'm listening for parts that I can I can take out from it and sample. Mm. Um, but I do I do think, I mean, yeah, you have sort of a, a hip hop background, so I guess we can talk about, you know, some of the some of the stick that sampling that gets that gets, uh, I think, sometimes, and mm. you know, people do see it as, you know, cheating or theft. copying or theft you know, fundamentally. Are you fundamentally you know, stealing? Yeah. Yeah, but but but. <laughs> The idea that you can listen to something that already exists, modify it, and manipulate it in a way that you like, um, you know, I, in a way that gives you something new, I think is fundamentally what science does anyway. There were nothing in science is well, very few things in science un, uh, exist without being built on something that has already yes. existed. Yes. We already take existing ideas and concepts. We extend them, we apply them, and then we go ahead and publish papers about how we've extended or applied them. And sampling is, is the same thing, I think. It, I, I do think it's I, – I think if you go in to listen to records or, in my case, many times what I tend to do is play – you know, you know, strange video games or we'll watch um, foreign TV shows or movies and listen to the soundtrack. And what it does is when you commit to that idea of using a sample, I think your experience with all sorts of media changes mm. because you're not just watching a movie, you're just not playing a game, but you're actually listening to the things underneath and, and your mind's constantly working as to, oh, you know, what can I use here? Can I use this? You know, that snare sounded really nice. That, you know, that drum roll is amazing. And you, 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 yeah, for me, it was just, it was a way to engage with media in ways that I don't think I would have done otherwise. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. It is fascinating. I'm not sure if any of your music is available through streaming services or online, but it's interesting to see the various streaming services are very coy now about um, actually allowing sampled music on the streaming services because uh, the group De La Soul comes to mind because De La Soul has recently finally, after nearly 20 yeah. years gotten their, um, gotten their music on electronic streaming it's very curious to me because I listen to a, a variety of different groups of all of them, De La Soul although Three Feet High and Rising, their first track that they, well, sorry, the first album they put out has probably, I, th I think the number is close to 120 uncleared samples, and they were finally sued by the Turtles of all groups. But listening to their stuff, I realized that um, the whole nature of sampling as it goes in streaming is a brand new and, in, in many regards, uncharted world. I think about that because, obviously, with my stuff in the late 90s, aside from the originally recorded music, the polymorphic sound stuff, um, it was all samples. It was all drum break samples. It was all, you know, even some of my more eclectic tracks were quite famous pieces of music played backwards. One of my favourite things to do was to take well-known records. I'm talking about things like the Beatles, Sgt. Peppers. I mean, you know, really very mainstream records that are very well-known and play them just little samples of them backwards because people would still get the same kind of emotional energy from the songs without knowing, oh, this is Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. No, it's the the whatever the electronic harpsichord part of that played backwards where you get almost the exact same emotive force associated with the audio, but it's not actually the same audio. So now um, it's really fascinating to see how these electronic streaming services are now kind of cutting and dividing. For example, YouTube online has a completely different set of requirements to Apple Music, which has a completely different set of requirements to Spotify. 
And these labels now have to be really careful of what they're putting out. I've had an experience recently where a, a bunch of my reissued stuff was, I think, tagged in Spotify. So you can't stream it on Spotify, but you can still stream it on Apple Music and YouTube. And through the, this experience recently, my uh, my streaming service that I use to stream all my music has given me a free code to actually publish a new album. Um, which is an amazing incentive to actually start working on music once again. But um, the sample is a very curious thing in terms of its history. It took, I mean, it predates hip-hop music, but it's so heavily exploited in hip-hop music. And what's interesting is finding examples of the sample outside of hip-hop music. There's a lot of rock and eclectic music, a lot of modern music now, actively samples from old music, which is very curious. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um yeah, you know, the origins of hip hop, we all, uh, we're not all, know, I guess some of the listeners uh, are probably a bit uh, naive to, to it. But, you know, it did start in, in things like disco and, and rhythm and blues and, and, and things like that. But, yeah, like you said, in more modern days, it has, you know, people are finding samples from all over the place. Um, people are, you know, even sampling spoken word out of movies, for instance, mm. and, and finding creative ways to, to sample those. Um, but, yeah, I mean, on that front, I have. Or we have, I should say, um, you know, various EPs on, on various streaming services. Uh, I don't think, I mean, I should say, yeah, most of them have samples on them uh, or, or use them quite frequently. I don't think they've been pulled so far. Uh, I should probably double check that because I'm not, <laughs> I've not looked at them for a, for a couple of years. But as far as I, I'm aware, um, Spotify have well, it's, it's passed the Spotify test, uh, so maybe I've done a really good job of just disguising the sample. Um, who knows? Uh, but but yeah, you are right. Uh, I think. Well, I, I don't know. I, I think there is a case to be made that samples should they be cleared uh probably i i think if it's a case of if, if you're actively going to make money off something that you are sampled then uh i mean it, it's much like the, the the case with um like the image generators uh for the ai stuff right and and using all of the training data that comes from existing artist work it's like some somebody has to get compensated you can't just take that for free um so so in some senses i i agree that if you are if, if you're exploiting somebody's work uh and you're making a pretty buck of it um then you you know th there is some cases to be made that you should clear those samples at least uh, or, or pay the necessary parties their their dues um but you know if you are again just a hobbyist um i, I guess if you're going to use that term and you're just uh taking small samples or you know drum breaks for instance or you know cutting a you know a kick drum or a snare and and finding creative ways to uh you know create new drum sequences i don't know i think i think people should be fine with that but yeah i, I don't know the rules with respects to all the different platforms uh i should probably check uh, it's probably my best interest to check that um but i've not had any issues so far but i i do yeah i don't know I, I in a way sampling feels like evolutionary in a sense right like almost that we we have loops and clips of, of all these instruments uh and effectively what we're doing as musicians or hip-hop musicians or producers is just manually adding this element of mutation or variation in a sense and then mm. combining it with something else and creating this new thing um 
yeah, I mean, if there, if there is like a, a far-reaching tie into air life <laughs> somewhere with the music, it can be that. Um, but no, yeah, I, I, I think it's cool. I think I, I, I have many thoughts about, about sampling, but I do think it needs to get the respect. Um, or it just needs to get more respect than it does. Um, I think the general consensus, the perspective is that it is just cheating, but I think people do need to... Yeah, have a different appreciation of it. Because at least for me, when I listen to music and, and I listen to, to quite a bit of hip hop, and if there's like a sample that I recognize, I mean, an example is, so maybe you, you might be familiar with this artist known as Wiz Khalifa, mm-hmm. uh, who's like this, this more recent hip hop artist. And and there was a, a song, I can't remember the song's name, but it might have been on a mixtape actually. And um, the instrumental the, 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 there was a loop and i instantly recognized the loop and it was from like this this japanese rpg game and not only did i enjoy then the song but but you get this new appreciation for that music because you have this connection with this with this song with this artist but like i know that song i enjoy that game and i really love what you've done with that sample mm. um, and i think sometimes you know having these samples that you can recognize um I think is really nice and and it just again it just changes the way that you can listen to these these songs uh, that are coming out from these from these musicians uh, but but similarly it also gives us an opportunity to well, it give artists an opportunity to expose new audiences to an existing melody or an existing sound that you know might have existed 30 40 years ago in their lifetime uh, that that a new generation might not have been familiar with yeah i've heard i couldn't tell you the song names but there are songs uh probably in the charts at the moment that are sampling uh songs from my childhood Mm. and and in a sense i'm like why why are they recreating these songs these songs have just been released but they haven't just been released they came out 30 years ago Mm. and what what the songs are doing is 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 taking these songs and you know repurposing them for a new audience and i think that's really cool as well because because what you do then is is, is give a nod uh, to those artists and say you know you respect that this is a really good song so much so that you are going to reintroduce it to uh, you know a brand new audience or a brand new generation that might have not come across it otherwise certainly and th- there's no one poorer than a new musician I mean this is the difficulty with regards to sampling. And certainly, you know, the De La Soul example is a good one. When they were creating Three Feet High and Rising, they weren't multimillionaires. They were just sampling what they could. And the notion of how how this, I mean, obviously there's a kind of fiduciary element to it, but how this thing is fundamentally paid back is something which I don't think is properly addressed. I mean, when I used to work with musicians and, you know, did this kind of stuff, I realized that we were all as poor as each other. Like there was, there were no standouts. Yeah. None of us were famous in any capacity. None of us had made a decent income ever. So the nature of sampling, that the the kind of lowest of the on the pay scale are the ones who probably should kick up financially, just strikes me as kind of antithetical to my experiences. And I also think that the the nature of musicians that litigate associated with sampling is really tired and. There's a long, uh, you might not be familiar with this, but there's a band called Men at Work and they have a song called I Come From Land Down Under, which samples yep. quite a prominent, um, the flute loop in that is quite a prominent Australian song, like an Australian folk song. Well, actually, it turns out it's not an Australian folk song. There's still a copyright holder and they sued Men at Work 
Um, I think the flautists actually died through the period of the litigation. I mean, it was particularly horrible. But it made you realise that even these songs from our childhood, as you say, are, contained kind of derivative music. And that whole notion that the, the, the final litigator was the holding company associated with the song that everyone assumed was a folk song but turned out not to be a folk song it was always quite of curious. But I did want to throw this back to the other topic that you would... I've, I've written down quasi-career. <laughs> because when you said that, I'm like, my life is full of quasi-careers. Like, this is... The, if, if I've done anything professionally, it's been very successfully being able to... Well, actually, a majority of the quasi-careers aren't actually paying careers. But it is a fascinating idea. I did want to touch briefly... Uh, well, we have a bit more time. We could talk about the Jeffrey talk, but you also said that you wanted to talk about role-playing games for all the poor, long-suffering biotechist listeners that are hoping we'll get to some artificial life-related discussion in this. But I think that is a fascinating... Oh, from the Jeffrey talk, is there anything that you wanted to talk about specifically? Uh, no, I, I think I was going to ask the question to you and say if there was anything that, that maybe wasn't covered in that talk that, that you might want to to expand on. Um, I mean, there, there was there was the idea because you mentioned um, I can't remember the exact details, but but effectively that you had a a telephone uh, what's the word a, a, a big data set, right? yeah yeah yes. telephone directory where you had this massive data set and and it was a data almost like a data matching problem mm. uh, in, in trying to identify all the different businesses and stuff that were in like, the the internals of build uh, buildings in London at this given time and I thought. I mean, I, I was walking through the park when I was listening to that um, particular episode, and yeah, I didn't have any clear ideas as to how I might address that. But it, it's one of those questions. It's like, oh, that's a really interesting data problem yes. to have, and I just wondered if yeah, you know, I, I can't remember the conclusion that that conversation, but whether you had got any closer to trying to solve it. Well, it's associated with perfectly venting from the discussion associated with sampling. It was associated with copyright. I don't have access to that data. I was for a period of time, although I no longer am a member of Ancestry, like the paid version of Ancestry, which gave me access to individual pages of the phone directory. And we're talking about about 2,400 pages worth of text, I think, of that order, um, which would have to be scanned in, would have to be OCR'd. The really critical information that came from that was associated with... Um, I think they're called postcodes in the UK. It's one of these terms where they're called zip codes in the US. I think they're called postcodes in the UK. Yeah. You would then get the postcodes, which ironically haven't actually changed since the Second World War. So you can then get the postcodes and then you'd know street address and postcode. Um, what, you know, the actual location and you could map this back onto the data set of London. Um, now, similarly to having to scan in these phone directory pages, well, actually, that's not true. They all exist digitally. That's what's so frustrating about this. That Basically, I got in contact with the British Telecom Archives, um, which are one of the two holders, the Ancestry.com holds the other holder, and just said to them, like, this is, the, this is what my project's about. It's about London in 1940. I'm not going to make any money out of this thing per our prior discussion and just you know this is this would be a great data set to have of course the fear is as i did with the maps the maps were something that um the library of scotland actually sold so as soon as i paid for the maps i immediately tidied them up and uh, put up a creative commons license on them and made sure that free as in free was actually going to be adhered to with the maps this was a brilliant data set but it was just one that i couldn't i ended up downloading maybe 25 pages to, to get a sense of if I had the data set, what would it mean? 
Now, there's a thing with the British Telecom Archive is absolutely fascinating. Unfortunately, I've dealt with far too many of these kind of eclectic groups with their own particular interests dealing with the London 1940 stuff. But once we had the maps um, and Bob Bottrum's algorithm, although it's not perfect, we had a good way of translating what were PNG files into JSON files. And JSON files are infinitely more um, interrogatable than PNG is if you're looking at this kind of data set. So my hope would have been to get access to, I don't know, 2,400 pages worth of 1940 London phone directory and then OCR that sufficiently, hopefully, that the the postcodes would remain intact and the street address would remain intact. And then you have to... It's still a huge cross-referencing problem then because, thankfully, the, the postcodes are relatively well-maintained in the actual locations. I think you can get them down to street cuttings um, in London, like, you know, this side of the street is on this postcode, this side of the street is on that postcode. But the nature of this London 1940 problem, let's call it a problem, was there was just so much data available and it was a way of trying to map the data into whatever underlying format you were using here, primarily JSON, which was then saved out. The Ape SDK has a, a lot of additional kind of JSON eclectic handlers, particularly with regards to moving them into fast accessible memory arrays, which is really a very difficult programming problem in and of itself, which I had to solve early on. But the nature of London 1940 was it was just a series, almost an onion (laughs) of these problems. You get through one layer and then you get to the next layer. You get through another layer and then you describe, you discover five layers back you were going through the wrong layer and you had to revisit what you're doing five layers ago. Like it really was quite, and this is before my daughters were born or even for the first year that they were born, I worked heavily on London 1940. Now it's just a data set. I was contacted through the week actually by someone who, was asking about the maps and where to get access to the maps. The maps are available on um, GitLab as well under the Creative Commons license. So, yeah, my hope is somewhere, maybe by putting this audio out into the ether, that someone will say, I'm really interested in that project. But the thing that struck me most about doing this thing is people in England really aren't interested in, in 1940 because they have the German, they have the Blitz, they have a bunch of additional kind of attacks on London. And because I was looking to actively simulate that in some regard, it turned a bunch of people off that as well. I think C-Line is absolutely fascinating in terms of just the way, if you look at the simulations of C-Line, they were all about, you know, six, 60,000 to 80,000 Germans landing on British soil. England at the time could have easily deterred that, even with the Home Guard. So I, my view is that if, if, if C-Line had occurred, and the Germans were doing it, it would, because it occurred, it would occur prior to Barbarossa when they invaded the Soviet Union, it would have been a similar, probably a similar number of soldiers. So we're talking literally in the millions of soldiers as opposed to the tens to hundreds of thousands of soldiers. So my interest was just to simulate the resiliency of London with a simulated group of Home Guard entities. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Home Guard at all. There's a show in England called Dad's Army, which was a kind of joke about the Home Guard. But the Home Guard was literally your father, you know, and his buddies from the First World War getting together with their rifles and reminiscing about old times with the hope that if Germans ever landed in, in England, but London specifically, that the Home Guard would be able to defend. So there are all these layers to the London 1940 stuff back when it was Sim Sea Line, uh, but then when it moved into London 1940, the telephone directory, unfortunately, is just a 
a block along the the path of now I have to start randomly populating a variety of professions and testing the economy of the city simulation that I have because I can't actually get the original data. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, just on that last point, actually, Dad's Army is, <laughs> I am familiar with it. I've never actually watched it. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those shows that tends to be on one of those cable television channels um, that, that you scroll through every now and then. Um, yeah, maybe it came out before I, I was born, actually. Probably did. It just itched me a little bit, yeah. Um, well, I don't know. The, the eclectic I thing about in... – sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but the eclectic yeah. thing about Dad's Army is it accurately portrays – and these are a decreasing number of groups, but throughout England, there were home guard. So throughout England, every almost every town in England has a – or had at some time a historical association with regards to capturing the local heroes – who predominantly were well it's the whole thing about the home guard is really very curious so sorry for interrupting you no no i i, I think it's good I, I think in a separate conversation that i've i've had um recently actually is a little bit with my wife as well as I, I don't know what your thoughts are and i don't know too much about it but but there is this somewhat glorification of, of the world war ii period um, mm. at least in the uk and I, I i mean i don't know enough about the history to, to understand why uh but yeah i mean just just through saying you know the existence of the home guard itself is probably case in point right is that there is something about that period that we just yeah well as a, as a society especially in the uk we just love talking about and i don't know i don't know why it is um but then you know i think what you said before sort of is counter to that point where people don't really like talking about it either. That's yeah, the curious, know. yeah, it's a strange kind of juxtaposition that I think certainly the revival of reenactment groups and these kind of things, I mean, there are many different layers to this. Through COVID, there were a series of books, my wife's book group read a, a bunch of them, that came out based in London in the 1930s and 40s. There is a, well, I mean, this is fundamentally conservatism as well, although that digresses very rapidly. But there is an idea that there was a better time, or we have access to a better time in the past, but when you actually talk, I mean, when I was in England, they stopped doing the Battle for the Atlantic. They stopped remembering it. Literally, actually, my neighbour at the time was a, a mariner um, on one of these, you know, vessels that crossed the Atlantic. Um, but England, for whatever reason, decided at the time that they weren't going to continue to hold a memorial every year for this very important part of the Second World War. But it is very curious that... I think it's a, it's a, there are two sides to this thing. On one side, people like to remember it in a very almost antiquated, almost fake positive light when actually, you know, people were killed through that period of time. Families lost a variety of, of loved ones, spouses, brothers, you know, the actual impact that the war had on the UK. But in contrast, I worked with a number of colleagues who were on, on the European mainland. Or whose family were on the European mainland, you know, it's amazing, actually, the distinction between those on the European mainland that don't want to remember these things fundamentally versus, as you say, this strange positivity associated with remembering it in England. But when you dig into it, well, you know, when I'm talking about simulating football hooliganism because it represents what the home guard, you know, the, the kind of local fighting styles might have been like, it's taking it a bit too far. It's very interesting that 
it's a, a strange relationship where you want to remember it in one part, but you don't want to remember a bunch of stuff associated with it. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think I would love to have a separate conversation with, with you about that, especially with the football hooliganism. I know we've spoken mm-hmm. uh, in our first conversation, actually, this idea of football hooliganism. And I know you spoke with Jeffrey about it as well. But, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I've, I've, been to i'm probably going a little bit off topic now but yeah i mean i have been to a lot of football matches over my life um and i've seen i've seen some hooliganism uh i yeah god uh have you been taken off trains because i mean my experience with regards this we live very close to manchester united we'd occasionally be on trains and we'd be pulled off trains and then filmed they have video cameras have you ever had that happen to you with the police no, I no, I don't think so. Um, actually, uh, which is probably quite fortunate for me. Um, but I do think so. I, I'm a Manchester United fan, actually. So I, I think at least uh, in those areas, the Manchester United fans don't tend to be. I mean, there's hooliganism everywhere, but but there you, you probably know this. There is like some level of like organised hooliganism, mm. uh, especially in like European football. They have these ideas of like ultras, so mm-hmm. ultra fans who, yeah. Gosh, I, I was in. I was. I went to uh, Gothenburg football uh, in April to so their first game of the season, and mm-hmm. you know, I think ultras are a different level of football fanatic. You know, for ninety minutes they are um, shooting fireworks in the air and you know, banging big massive drums, and you know, will actively go out. And these are the type of, of groups that will actually go out and, and look for organised fights with with other groups of, <laughs> of fans. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, and th- there are pockets of that. So you probably know places like Millwall and West Ham and places of like that. We'll, we'll all, we'll, yeah, um, so I do think it's it's probably dependent on where in the country you are. Uh, places in Scotland, uh, Glasgow Rangers and Celtic have, have probably got quite uh, passionate fans as well. Uh, yeah, no, I don't know where I was going with that, but but there we are. Uh, it's a thing, football yeah. hooliganism. I think that was the, the takeaway yeah, from yeah. that. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So digressing very rapidly, if we haven't digressed enough, if we haven't done any non-artificial life-related topics, I had written down, because this is something that obviously we touched on the last recording, role-playing games. And you also said choose-your-own-adventure role-playing games uh, or choose-your-own-adventure books. What's your background history with this stuff? Uh, Not a lot. So again, again, I have some... It's really interesting. So you had mentioned this idea of... um, like world building and mythology in our last conversation with respect to your simulations. Uh, and it got me thinking a little bit about some of the, uh, some of the experiences that I've had with, uh, like role playing games and these text based role playing, playing games. In particular, actually, my experience, uh, although it came a little bit late, uh, was, um, through forums, actually. So I played, gosh, for anywhere between 10, so maybe six or seven years, actually, uh, would play uh, this role-playing game as a text-based, uh, in a text-based format on, you know, various, you know, PHP, BB forums uh, where you assume the role of a character or, you know, you might be a, a game master or a dungeon master or whatever that might be. And, and you're literally just, you, you know, you're, you're typing and you're creating a post in the style of your character, t- you know, 
explaining what your character is going to do and so on and so forth. And then you're just sitting at your screen and just hitting the refresh button and waiting for somebody else to post who might be in the same game with you. Mm. Um, so, yeah, no, no. But, but I mean, I, we can come back to that. I, I think your experiences are probably more than mine. Um, so, so I guess the reason I raised this, this point and raised this question is because I was just really interested in just exploring that a little bit more from your experiences mm. uh, and just just a little bit more about, you know, how that might have influenced this idea of, of world building and story building and narrative in, in, in some of your simulations. Well, I... I have an existing podcast called My Rules Are Better, which is basically around this. Um, uh-huh. It's really fascinating that, uh, you know, these things are, are pretty well shared of people. I'm assuming we're probably separated by at least a decade, but of people of a similar kind of... It's really associated with your kind of background interests, your particular proclivities associated with exploring, you know, virtual worlds and this kind of stuff. I met two gentlemen... Uh, one called Steve Jackson, one called now, he wasn't a sir when I met him, but Sir Ian Livingston. And they created a company called Games Workshop, which is obviously huge. It's a multi-billion dollar company now. And they were part of my early introduction to this thing through fighting fantasy game books. Um, yep. But for me, it was so I, I actually currently have a I'm currently in the process of publishing uh, a role playing game book um, just back to this discussion of quasi-careers over one's life. <laughs> um, but so role-playing for me is something that's very intimate, very much associated with a particular period in my life. And really, it's almost it's almost thespian. You're basically play-acting um, to a small group of people that you're playing the game with. And recently, uh, with work, actually, uh, I had to have a colleague who actually appears in the My Rules of Better podcast, uh, Derek, who came to Netflix where I work and he had never done any role-playing in his past. And this was just like, what? You can't, you can't call yourself a nerd of some <laughs> ilk and not have done any role-playing. So I, after, I don't know, probably 20 years, maybe it was with the latest edition of Dungeons and Dragons, which was fifth edition to show how old yep. I was. First edition was what I played predominantly when I was role-playing. Um, anyway, so we, we played a game which went on for about 18 months, uh, every, uh, week, but sometimes every other week through the more difficult periods where we couldn't get the numbers. But we had about 12 people that would show up in the, well, we basically would finish work and then do the role playing at the office. Uh, and I tested my role playing game, Just Playing Chaos, which is the one that I'm working on currently, uh, getting published, uh, which actually has a really interesting set of, Vends into a variety of different topic discussions because when I was young, um, I'm, you may have heard of this gentleman, Julian Assange, uh, who's probably one of the most famous Australians that has existed <laughs> in the past hundred years. Well, I knew Julian Assange back in Australia. I wrote antiviral software for the Australian government, um, amongst other things. Um, and I knew Julian Assange because there was this community within the antiviral community. You need to study where these viruses are coming from. You need to, create a very interesting history. This ultimately is artificial life, pre-artificial life for my work. But anyway, so that is Just Blank Chaos. Just Blank Chaos is actually a somewhat abstract set of removals from knowing people like Julian Assange and what I did with regards to my antiviral software. Anyway, returning to role-playing. Role-playing for me is just something that I'm surrounded by books and probably about... I don't know, maybe a third of them, maybe a quarter of them are role-playing games specific. So it's not just, 
it's a very specific period and Jackson and Livingston were just so seminal and fascinating. I'm not sure if you've met any of your childhood heroes periodically. I've spent a lifetime meeting my childhood heroes. Have you ever gone out and met your childhood heroes? It's just a... Um, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I don't think I have. I mean, there is that, that age-old saying of never meet your heroes. I don't, I don't know <laughs> I don't know how accurate that is. But, um, I mean, nothing comes to mind. No. So when I was 18, I met a fellow called John Draper Crunch, and I've actually written his biography. Um, he's one of the early phone hackers. Well, he's one of the early hackers uh, who found that frequencies would change the American dial times 26... 100 um, is the frequency he used to blow a, a whistle that he got from a cereal box, a Captain Crunch cereal box, which is how he generated the name Captain Crunch. Well, I uh, first met him when I was 18. He was traveling around Australia and wanted to meet local cyber luminaries. And I already had a bit of a bit of skin in the game, so to speak, with regards to writing antiviral software and DJing and a bunch of other things. So anyway, I met this fellow and he proceeded to do what he described as an energy blockage removal on me which was fundamentally a form of physical assault, for want of a better term. It became very dark, actually. If people want to look John Draper Crunch up in Wikipedia, they could see that this has been moved out of just what was physical assault to another form of assault. Anyway, I've written about that in his biography. Um, so the nature of books, the nature of meeting my childhood heroes, I spent a small period of time with Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple. So I've had various points in my life where I've spent time with my childhood heroes. It's always terrible. Like, it's always really bad. Meeting Jackson Livingston was quite nice. They're both interesting people. I had the opportunity of spending a little bit of time with them at their fant fighting fantasy test. Uh, sorry, fighting fantasy. Um, well, I don't know what it's, it's like a convention that they run each year for fighting fantasy. But that was interesting because I, at the time, would still do represent Netflix in some capacity. And Netflix was going through a period where they had released what was called Bandersnatch, which was like uh, choose your own adventure, but for video um, you know, yeah. real-time watching. Uh, but it was very much associated with this 1980s computer games here, fundamentally not role-playing games, but they're all part of the same, they're all part of the same soup, so to speak. Um, I think that, you know, role-playing games um, became, as you say, you know, you did it in text-based um, format. The only distinction between a role-playing game is I'd play it with pen and paper and an uh, adventure game on a computer is you have the ability to do a wide variety of really curious manipulation when you play a role-playing game on pen paper, which you don't have in software. It would be wonderful in software to have the amount of dynamism that enables characters to start doing a variety of different things that I've seen while I've you know, hosted these role-playing games. But it is a completely, fundamentally, the ability to create uh, fantastic environments that you could never describe in computer video games, although increasingly these things are pushed with regards to the boundaries you're really dealing with a different kind of cognitive force when you do role playing to the extent i mean i never got into live action or any of the other things i never um you know wore fake armor or anything like that but i certainly was very much interested in mythology mythical creatures the mapping of mythology which is fundamentally tolkien back onto actually parts of england uh, parts of england and wales and scotland i mean you know, the nature that a lot of this role-playing comes from deep mythology, which is based in actual things, and the way in which really we were talking about the Second World War. The Second World War is moving into the realm of mythology now. It's moved from being a series of facts to a series of facts no one can remember into this thing which is more about, as you say, talking in a very grand fashion about these stories that a very few people actually have any first-person contact with. 
Um, when COVID started, my wife and I used to travel to England primarily and also Australia. So when COVID started, we had this little bit of money left over, which was previously our travel budget. Um, and at the time, a fellow called uh, Plotnik, who was part of the creation of the uh, Belgium state. He was in the early, where before it was the Netherlands and then it broke away, all this kind of thing. Anyway, he fought in a series of different battles, including Waterloo. And at the time I found his medals available online. So my daughters can hold in their hand a medal from the Battle of Waterloo, right? But that is mm -hmm. all mythology now. The whole thing is, there's a thing that happens with history where it moves from the point of, certain writable facts and we're talking about the origin of computers Wozniak, uh, you know John Draper Crunch, these people are in, in a mythology sphere more than they're in a history sphere and that's something that I find very interesting as, as I live my life going back and meeting my childhood heroes, realising that all they're doing is perpetuating their mythology, not actually talking about the kind of darker aspects of you know, what they did in this case of this John Draper Crunch guy, literally physically assaulting him he came in contact with because he wanted to determine whether or not the people could be trusted. Well, that's what he said at the time and said to me since. It's to determine whether or not you could trust people is you've got to do this extremely laborious energy, what he calls an energy blockage removal technique, which involves basically him hanging on your back and you doing push-ups and a variety of other <laughs> things. I mean, it really is very strange. When you have an experience with reality of these things, you start to realize that so much of one's life is actually pinned on these mythologies. In fact, the nature of human society is fundamentally about mythology because that's the way you can create these um, immensely curious cities with these monkey-like creatures that just wander through them. <laughs> no, I, yeah, no, that, that, that's a really interesting point, actually, in that, in that you know, what we have, this idea of, of uh, you know, facts, we'll call them facts, from, the, from World War II now moving into the realm of mythology and, you know, the the lines between what is effectively, you know, the facts and, and, and the not facts, let's call them, is, is very much blurred. Uh, and, and I think that kind of issue is only going to get perpetuated more and more uh, as time goes on, especially with all the misinformation and stuff that is happening at the moment. Um, you mentioned uh, fighting fantasy. It's really interesting because it sparked a memory that I had. The so I think I was a little bit late for fighting fantasy, but that I I remember we went to a what is called a car boot sale here in the UK. I don't know what it, the best translation would be, um, like a yard sale, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not really a yard sale. Because it um, happens at a place, like a group of people get together, open yeah, up their car boots, and then sell stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and we came home one day, and I got the board game of, I think it was, was it Warlock of Firetop Mountain? That's the first one, yeah. Well, yeah, so I, that was, I actually had that in a board game fashion, and <laughs> I remember opening it. I must have been seven or eight at the time. I remember opening it, and it was quite confusing. <laughs> I couldn't make head and tails of it. And it turns out because there were some pieces that were missing, and I couldn't quite set the game the way I wanted it to, <laughs> as, as is the way. It's, it's heavily damaged and heavily used. Um, so I guess, yeah, if I, ha if I have one small experience with the fighting fantasy series, that, that's probably it. Um, but yeah, gosh, uh, I probably have that at home somewhere still. Um, but no, I, I think your point again about uh, pen and paper, or in my case, it was sort of text and forum based um, uh, adventures of role playing games being, 
you know, much broader, much grander, much richer, um, forcing you to be much more creative. I think I completely agree with you. I, yeah, it, it does. I've seen in myself, especially at that age, because I was playing at probably a similar time to you, I guess. I was sort of, you know, 11, 12, 13 at school, doing all of my schooling, but also in the evenings uh, and, and staying up far too late talking with a bunch of Americans and Canadians who and whoever else might be playing um yeah just creating these stories on on this forum and 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 there there are there are far less constraints on that type of format where you know the world can be i mean of course there are there are rule sets and there are constraints in you know all the various manuals that you might be working from but you know that world building can literally be whatever you want it to be in 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 large parts and um even as so you know playing as a a game master or a dungeon master or whatever you want to call it you're never quite sure what you might need to react to uh or what what the other players in the game might be doing and i think for me at that age it was quite formative in 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 my creative writing and my creative thinking uh and it's interesting because i've seen i've had this conversation or similar conversations with with people in various communities and I would love to see the Venn diagram of people in air life who have also played these types of games because I would hedge my bets and say it's it's quite large. I think, yeah, there are just common themes, right? It, it, people in air life, uh, yeah, it attracts a certain type of person, and that type of person is probably the same type of person that is going to be playing these types of games and engaging in these types of formats. Um, yeah, I don't know what your experiences are in that regard, but at least in my experiences, I've seen, yeah, air lifers just tend to be more likely to be, you know, playing things like Dungeons and Dragons. So it was actually on Dungeons and Dragons, my, I think I played a bit of third edition and, and then I, I didn't play for a long time and then I played a bit of fifth mm-hmm. uh, more recently, but I've not, I've not played for a long time. Uh, but yeah, I mean that's probably something that I would I would love to get back into at some point. But it's just it just takes time. Doesn't it? I mean, we commit to so many things, and like you said, it's it's if if you're committing to a campaign or whatever for eighteen months to two years, uh, it necessarily requires that you have the same group of people week in week out. Um, but I I think the point of uh, just all all of that with respect to how it overlaps to to creativity. I, I think is 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 just nice, uh, and I think it's really really important. And it was a point actually I mentioned in in our show notes that we probably won't get to today. But just the importance of of actually engaging in these types of things is well, both as a child actually, but but also as we get older, uh, I think it's something that we lose. We lose that element of of play of creativity, uh, and, and I do wish that that I could see more more, more adults. Uh, yeah, more people in in sort of older ages engage with these types of things because I do think it could be massively valuable. It would be a different world if more adults yeah. got into this kind of stuff. A better world, <laughs> one would one would hope at least, um, yeah. where you didn't have to fight wars, you just could do role-playing games instead. But anyway, <laughs> Emmy, it's been an absolute pleasure. We've, we've made the hour perfectly. Um, I don't know what the next one... I, I did float the idea that maybe we might be able to touch on theism and science at some stage so maybe that is yeah. 
Yeah, that I mean that would be great. So I mean on my end, I am uh, preparing for air life. So I'm flying out to Japan next week. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can do a couple of things. We can either sort of do a debrief of the conference the week mm-hmm. after. If you why don't we do or, that? Yeah, why don't we do that? Because obviously these conferences are intense, for want of a better term, and uh, the way you could decompress it on a podcast is probably going to be luxury for the listeners as well. Yeah, yeah let's do that. Jimmy, it's been a pleasure as always. Look forward to talking to you soon. Take care. Tom, thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye.